0: And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, as he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, he took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, you can be seated as we pray together. Father, we... We thank you for this sermon text this morning and the great truths that are found in it. That Christ has come to dwell with us, that uh, he was conceived in this incredible fashion. I thank you for the opportunity to worship together this morning, this opportunity to hear these truths together. Father, I pray that you would be with us this sermon I pray that you be with us through all of this Advent season as we eagerly anticipate and we long for the coming of your Son. Be pleased in your grace, Lord, to grant that to us, a deeper sense of longing, a deeper sense of joy. We pray all of this in the name of Christ. Amen. So, uh, I am so excited to be able to uh, kick off our Advent uh, sermon series this year. I actually ended it last year, so I kind of bookended um, everything that happened that was not Advent from the end of last year to this year, so, you know, and beginning, um, which, in retrospect, maybe this was all my fault, uh, you know, maybe uh, all of this horrible business in between was, was called to me doing this, but I say, that, uh, I say that jokingly, obviously. This year, we're doing something a little bit more fun. Uh, this is one of our only times of the year that we have uh, baked into our calendar uh, a time for a more topical sermon series. So this year, uh, we are calling our sermon series Heaven and Nature Sing. Since each week, we're going to be featuring a, uh, a classic Christmas hymn and we will be preaching the text that either inspired uh, that hymn or uh, a text that is very closely related in theme to that hymn. So this week, as we begin Advent, I, I can't think of a better uh, a better hymn to begin our Advent uh, season than "O Come, O Come, Emmanuel," because "O Come, O Come, Emmanuel" perfectly encapsulates that sense of longing, that sense of anticipation that we want to encourage, that we want to pursue during this Advent season. Just hear the opening verse again. O come, O come, Emmanuel, in ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appears. So this hymn originated Um, in the 7th century is a collection of seven prayers by uh, medieval monks for the Advent season. So these prayers would be prayed uh, once per day uh, leading up to uh, Christmas Eve. And so um, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel is is our preserved version. That's the song version of these uh, prayers that we sing uh, during the Advent season. We have that same longing for Christ in our hearts for his coming, and that same longing in our hearts for his return. And so that leads us to Matthew one eighteen through 25. Um, it's my hope that Matthew one eighteen through 25 can this morning draw us into that sense of longing and anticipation uh, that we seek during this Advent uh, season. Waiting and anticipating, though, is hard work. It really is, especially if there's not some, you know, like, specific uh, specific day, specific thing. We have, the, we have the privilege of anticipating, you know, Christmas Day and the return of Christ and that. But for uh, you kids, you know, perhaps anticipation is easy. You know, perhaps uh, you, you have no trouble getting excited for any number of things. Uh, but I feel like for many of us, uh, adults especially, uh, that it's hard to grow in anticipation because it, it feels like nothing ever happens. You know, do you, you ever feel like uh, nothing ever happens? Uh, I, mean that, I mean that because it's, it's like this. Um, we have our daily routines. You know, we wake up in the morning. We go through our, our morning schedule. And then we go to work. Uh, we come home. We eat one of about 20 meals. Uh, then we spend some time with our family and we go to bed. And we wake up the next morning, and we go through our morning routine, and then we go to work, and we come home and eat one of about 20 meals and spend some time with our family. We go to bed, and we wake up the next morning, and you get the point. You know, this, uh, that's only two days, and we got five each week. Uh, so we, we live this cycle again and again and again. It can feel like our lives are only ever ordinary and that nothing ever happens. But every once in a while, something extraordinary does happen in our lives. You know, perhaps, uh, you know, in, in a small-scale, personal kind of way, uh, some big events like you get married, or you have a kid, or you buy a house, and those are extraordinary events in, you know, our ordinary course of life. And there's also some big events, some things that affect everybody, some uh, extraordinary events that affect all of us. And Uh, A very good and very recent example of that would obviously be the coronavirus pandemic. We can go back, you know, there's 9-11, assassination of Kennedy, Pearl Harbor. These are all big events that have affected lots of people and shaken people out of their normal, ordinary rhythms of life. But I need you to understand something. There is nothing, nothing that's ever happened in the course of human history as significant as what happens to... A, um, a young, unassuming Hebrew woman named Mary in the first century. There is no uh, event of course, of the course of history that has so much impact, so much effect on our lives and our world in it. So this woman, Mary, received a message from a heavenly messenger that the Messiah would be born from her, even more, that Emmanuel, God, himself would be born from her. And I imagine that she was left quaking at this realization, that she was uh, um, enthralled and consumed by the idea that soon the Messiah would be born from her. And even so, you know, normal life continued all around her, I'm sure. I'm sure she ate the same things and drank the same things and spent time with the same people doing the same things. But even in the midst of that ordinary life. She was well aware of the extraordinary that would soon come from her. And so in the same way, we enter this Advent season with our regular rhythms of life, with our very ordinary lives and our very um, ordinary rhythms of life, but we have the privilege of anticipating the extraordinary. And so that's is uh, what we're going to do today as we look at one of the, if not the most extraordinary events in the Bible, the virgin conception of Christ. So as we look at this, we're going to basically ask two questions. What is and what's the significance of the virgin conception of Christ? And second, what kind of child could come through such a conception? So uh, when we're looking at the first bit of this, we have to ask ourselves, what is and what's the significance of this uh, doctrine of the virgin conception? Well, when we look at the text, we can see the story as it's laid out. It begins with uh, Mary being betrothed to Joseph, of course, betrothal, having a little bit more weight than our you know um, modern-day equivalent of engagement. Uh, it's a little bit more uh, formal, a little bit harder to dissolve, uh, but that she's betrothed to a man named Joseph, but before they come together, um, an angel visits her and tells her that there has been a child conceived in her um, through the working, through the miraculous working of the Holy Spirit. And so um, I imagine that she, as I said earlier, was enthralled with this, but also perhaps a little nervous, right? Because she can't prove that this this came through the Holy Spirit. Like, unless I, you know, am mistaken, she didn't get a receipt. You know, uh, she was just told this, and um, and so uh, there could have been severe consequences for this. She could have, by Hebrew law, uh, been put to death for infidelity. Um, Joseph, uh, even though he did not pursue that path at all, seemed to think that that was the case. That this was the case of infidelity because he decided to. Divorce her quietly, though not putting her to shame. But again, God intervenes. An angel comes to Joseph and says, No, take Mary as your wife with full confidence because what has happened is the result of my working, is the result of the working of the Holy Spirit. And so uh, Joseph does just that. He takes Mary as his wife, and Christ is born to Mary and to Joseph. So, when we look at the bigger picture of this doctrine, uh, this doctrine that Christ was conceived through the miraculous working of the Holy Spirit in the Virgin Mary, uh, we should know that this is one of the most famous Christian doctrines, right? You could talk to an unbeliever, you know, who, who doesn't even know, you know, he's, they, they've not been in, in church very much, they're, you know, not very involved, but they know uh, that um, a uh, that Christians be- believe that Christ was born to um, to Virgin Mary, uh, and so as such, it is a very famous doctrine. Unfortunately, some Christians have uh, like sought to kind of discredit this doctrine or to deny it uh, by saying that Matthew kind of conjured this doctrine up uh, to uh, basically. Um, uh, make a fulfillment prophecy true, Um, but based on this account and the account in Luke, they're different accounts. They seem to be detail-oriented. It seems to be that Matthew and Luke both believe this to have really happened. It's not just a literary device. We believe that it literally happened, that this is how Christ came about. I understand why people would, in theory, Um, want to deny this. They feel that the doctrine's unnecessary, and they think it's it's just like it's a barrier to people wanting to come to faith because they think, well, it's a little weird. Well, it is meant to be a little weird because it's a miracle, right? That's the whole point. It's miraculous, and as such, we believe um, scriptures to be fully uh, um, inspired and fully authoritative and to have told us quite clearly that Christ was born um, from Mary as a virgin. So um, we do have to ask, what's the significance of this doctrine? Why does it matter? Well, um, It's not one of those doctrines that uh, has just a cascading ripple effect down our faith, like the resurrection or the trinity. You know, if if you take out the trinity, and there's a lot that's affected and falls uh, based on that. Take out the resurrection, there's a lot that's affected and falls based on that. But, even so, it is very significant. It is very powerful and impactful, for at least two reasons. First, when we come to the virgin conception of Christ, we see that the Messiah that Mary bears, the Christ that Mary bears, is completely different from all those who have come before him. So uh, this is, as I said, unusual, and it's meant to be unusual. It's meant to capture our attention and even our imagination as we read this and make us wonder, well, if, if this... Messiah can come about through such incredible, um, miraculous means, what kind of person will he be like? Um, it, it sets the stage for, for the gospel to describe someone who is fundamentally different and fundamentally better than all those who had come before him. You have uh, Moses and Gideon and David, these Messiah-type figures in the Old Testament, but none of them can claim such an incredible origin story as our Savior Jesus Christ does. He is fundamentally different and fundamentally better than all who've come before him. And the doctrine of the virgin conception uh, shows us that Christ is the fulfillment of the long-held hope of God's people. Specifically in Matthew 1, uh, 22, and 23, it says, just to, to jog your memory, all of this, uh, of course, being the virgin conception of Christ. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so um, Matthew here is quoting Isaiah 7, uh, 14. And he's telling us that Christ, uh, in his conception, and his birth, is the fulfillment of of Isaiah seven fourteen. Now we do not have time to get into all the weeds of Isaiah seven fourteen, and we actually have a sermon from two years ago uh, on this passage. So you can go back and listen to that on Isaiah seven fourteen. The most important thing for this passage um, in here in Matthew 1, 18 through twenty five is that Jesus is the fulfillment of that prophecy, and that Christ fulfills um, the long held hope of a Savior who would come to the people of Israel and redeem them. And so in uh, Christ's conception, we see that he is different from those who come before and that he is the fulfillment of the Old Testament hope for a Messiah who would come to be much better than those who come before. So in summary, the doctrine of Christ's conception is meant to be a sign a sign with big red flashing lights, sirens, the whole uh, nine yards to signal to us that this Savior, this Christ, would not be business as usual, that he would be fundamentally and completely different and fundamentally and completely better. And so the natural question comes, if Christ would be born in such a way, what kind of person would he be? I think Matthew uh, 1, 18 through 25 also gives us a small glimpse into the kind of Messiah that Jesus would be. So if we can, uh, if we can look at, at Matthew 1, 18 through 25 as is, is describing um, the kind of person that uh, Mary's child will be, I think we could see um, basically three truths, three truths that are illuminated from this passage that tell us uh, what it'll be like. The first two are kind of grouped together. They're similar. They describe uh, the kind of roles that this uh, Christ will play. And the last one is way different from the first two as it describes something that is uh, deeply uh, true about who this person is. All right, so um, the first truth that we see in this passage, the first truth about who this Messiah will be is that Mary's child will be a king. Mary's child will be a king. Now, this is a bit more implicit than the second two, and to really understand uh, how Matthew 1, 18 through 25 hints to the fact that um, Jesus, who is coming, will be a king, we have to look to the earlier part of uh, Matthew chapter 1. So that's right. Um, we are going to the genealogy. Um, which for those, I don't know if anyone at Trace keeps records of this, but it has to be a record. This is the second time I will make a um, sermon point by exegeting a genealogy in the month of November. So whoever keeps records of uh, of that, make sure to uh, to put that one down. Um, I think that would be a first. But, yeah, so when we we look at Matthew 1's uh, genealogy, it is very, very, Very theologically rich. It communicates a lot through a list of names. You see, when he uh, when he uh, lists this genealogy out, it's essentially in three parts. But the highlight, uh, the highlighted figure in this genealogy is that of David. In fact, if you have ESV text block as I do, uh, it should kind of highlight that. And when you get to one six it starts a new paragraph. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. So um, in this genealogy, it's highlighting that Christ descended from David. And if you follow this genealogy all the way down, uh, you get to the end of in verse um, 16. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. And then uh, so... Uh, we see that, that Christ has this uh, ascension from David down to Joseph. And so uh, when we get to Matthew 1, 18 through 25, uh, we see that um, Joseph's perspective is emphasized. Right, you know, when you look at Luke's perspective of this of this event, it emphasizes Mary's perspective. You know, uh, she she has the song there. It, it talks about her thoughts and her feelings and the specifics of what the angel said. Well, here in Matthew, it just kind of speaks uh, to the fact that uh, that um, Mary, you know, was visited by an angel. But then it really goes into detail about what Joseph is thinking and what he's feeling and what he does. And it's trying to emphasize to us Jesus's relation to Joseph because Jesus is descendant. Or excuse me, Joseph is descendant of David. In fact, in verse twenty, um, when the angel uh, addresses Joseph, he calls him Joseph, son of David. And furthermore, um, when uh, when at the end of verse twenty-five, Joseph names Jesus, Jesus. He is um, formally uh, completing the process of making Jesus his son. So, all of that to say uh, that um, Matthew is emphasizing Jesus' relationship to David to show us that Christ will be a king as David was a king. Just as David was like the capital T V king in the Old Testament, the one that people thought of when they thought of Old Testament kings, Christ descended from David, would be a king, that he would reign over his people. This one that was uh, conceived through the extraordinary event of uh, of the, the virgin conception would come to be a king like no other. So we see that Mary's child will be a king. We also see that Mary's child will be a savior, And this one is is much more clear. Uh, You'll be pleased to know we don't have to dive through the genealogy to get to this one. Um, When we look at verse 121, we see that Joseph was commissioned to name this child Jesus, for he will save his people. make a long story short, uh, Jesus is, as a name, is meant to uh, have connotations of salvation, um, as in God will save. And so that's why this, this uh, angel says you're going to name him Jesus because he will save his people. And so I imagine uh, that uh, would have um, been very um, impactful in the mind of Joseph and of Mary, to know that this child that they were carrying would be a savior to God's people, that he would bring salvation to them. I imagine, uh, again, you know, using imagination, I imagine that uh, Joseph, these words of the angel just rattled around in his head again and again. He will save his people. He will save his people. He will save his people. Though so Christ was meant to come. He was, in this exception, he was meant to come as a savior. And as you know, uh, I'm, I'm sure you've, you've heard it a hundred thousand times, a lot of the people in, uh, in in Jesus's day were expecting a Messiah. They were expecting someone to come and be a Savior. But what most of them had in mind was a political Savior, a political messiah, someone who would come and who would, uh, you know, overthrow the Roman government and give the people of Israel the independence and the prosperity that they had always wanted. Well, Matthew hints to us that Jesus's salvation, the salvation that he brings, would be a bit different from that. Because in verse 21, he says, he will save his people from their sins. He does not say he will save his people from their oppression from the the Roman government, he says he will save these people from their sins, hinting to us that what Jesus was coming to do was not fundamentally change the geopolitical landscape of Earth, but he was coming to renew hearts and minds and make a new people of God. He was coming uh, to be a restoration of people uh, from themselves. He was coming uh, not as much to eliminate an external enemy. He was not coming so much to to win elections or to crack skulls. He was coming to be a savior from our own selves. He was coming to bring salvation from sins. And so uh, when you just put these two things together, you get the picture of something extraordinary happening with Mary and this conception something way different. I mean, this guy is going to be a king, and a messiah, and a savior, but there's more to it. This is just two of the last three, and the three, the third, as I've already said, is so fundamentally different than the other two. So we've seen that Mary's child will be a king, and that Mary's child will be a savior, but last we see Mary's child will be God. Verse 23 again, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. This is the great Christian doctrine of the incarnation. Something so incredible, something so distinct, and something so wonderful. The truth that God was born. Emmanuel, that God himself had come to be with us, to dwell with us, to live as a man, to act as a man, to grow from childhood to adulthood, that he would learn how to eat, that he would stub his toe, that he would be fully human and be fully with us. Men of good sense have not dared to believe something more incredible than this because this is extraordinary. This is a an earth-shattering truth that God has come to dwell with us. He has come to be with us. As such, we don't just have the opportunity for anticipation this advent season. We have the obligation. We have the obligation for anticipation because we together believe something incredible, that God has come as a human to be with us, that God has come to dwell with man. And so we, this season, have the opportunity and, as I said, the obligation of anticipating the extraordinary, not merely the ordinary. And so that leads me to... My only real point of application here, I want to encourage you and me to practice anticipation this Advent season. Right, this, I, I imagine, as I, as I put myself in Mary's shoes, I imagine so much anticipation here. Anticipation of who this child would be and what he would do from such a miraculous conception. In the same way, I mean, we know the rest of the story, so we don't have, you know, the element of, ooh, what's it going to be? But we, uh, knowing that, perhaps in an even better spot to anticipate what is so incredible about the Christmas season, that Christ, God himself, dwelt among us. And so I want to encourage you and me, again, to anticipate that this season, to begin now uh, of reflecting upon this truth that God has come to dwell among us. But we don't merely, we don't merely just kind of uh, look back at something that was going to happen, so like a pfft, pfft thing, like we look forward, you know, we actually look forward to what is to come. We anticipate Christ's return, we anticipate Christ's second coming. And so I I want to encourage you as well to anticipate what uh, Revelation 21, 3, and 4 put so well. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And so, we have the opportunity to look forward to the second coming in which we will be with God, that he will be with us in a new way that is even more intimate and more accessible than Christ's first coming to dwell with us as a man. We look forward to that opportunity. So, as we go through this Advent season, spend time, focus time, reflecting on the truth that Christ has come and that Christ will come again. Spend time doing that with your family. Spend time doing that by yourself. Um, you know, some suggested practices, you know, that we, we, we talk about this like on the, the podcast and things that we had. you know, don't take these as papal dictums or anything. This is just you know, suggestion here. Perhaps consider uh, abstaining from some of those things that are inherently distracting from you that cause you to focus on what is ordinary and takes your attention away from this extraordinary truth of, uh, of the incarnation. Perhaps that means, you know, maybe no social media, or at least, you know, just, just posting your family pictures, uh, you know, this year. Um, maybe that means, you know, abstaining from, from TV or whatever else. Perhaps uh, just fasting uh, would be a good practice for you to encourage that anticipation this season. Um, Matthew, in, in the podcast, he uh, said that he, and I think he put this in one of the emails, he likes to uh, do a no phone while waiting rule. So it connects that actual you know, sense of anticipation. It causes us to uh, anticipate what is so significant about this Advent season when we're in times of waiting at the mall or at the uh, red light or whatever. But I say all of that to say, what I want for you and for us is to be able this Advent season to anticipate what is so gloriously true about our faith. God came as a human to save us and he will come again to restore and renew all things. So I pray.